I want to talk to you this morning about the priority of koinonia, community. How many believe that uh, community is a priority, or it certainly it ought to be a priority for us? We're in many ways we're designed for it, and uh, and I'm not sure that uh, there are the majority of believers today who believe that community is a priority. So we want to keep talking about this. Turn to Romans chapter 12, if you would, in your Bibles, and then put your finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to just reference a couple of passages that most of us are familiar with, we've looked at, that I want to rehearse again with you. The Bible says that we, we share a common life in Christ. We've been looking at Jesus' words in John's Gospel with respect to the vine and the branches. The reality is, the objective truth uh, is that we are branches in the vine. We share his life. He says he's the vine, we're the branches. Paul says much the same thing using his metaphor of a body in Romans here and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's very, very important that we believe and that we embrace this truth. We share this common life. In verses 4 and 5 of Romans chapter 12, he says, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, each member belongs to all the others. We're, is, is, is the body of Christ, we're a unified whole, and all the parts are different, have different functions. We belong to all the other. We're interdependent. We need one another, and we need one another to be functioning in our callings and our giftings. Unless that happens, then the body is, is limited. The body is disabled, if you will, and doesn't function at its optimal level. Can you imagine a crippled Christ? Jesus, who, who couldn't get around in a day when you, you had to get around. They didn't have cars and didn't have bikes in, in, those, th- in, the, in those days. They had carts. If we could haul him around on a cart, that hardly would have been a testimony, would it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says much the same thing. Being at verse 25, there should be no division in the body. That's that, that in itself, that'll preach, won't it? No division in the body. This body has to function. All the parts have to be working together. The parts can't be doing their own thing. And hence the body of Christ. There should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. You can pose that in the form of a question. Do I care about the body? Do I care about the parts of the body? He goes on, he says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Emphasize that word with. We suffer with it. We rejoice with it. The implication is that we share this common life. We share this common life together. This is, the, this is the objective fact. This is the truth of koinonia. 
It's not an option for us. And the realization that we do share a common life with each other, that realization, I think, should stimulate us with a desire to share that life experientially with one another. It's not enough that I know I'm a part of the body. That's a fact. But that very knowledge ought to stimulate me to want to share experientially in the body. My hand, if I can personify it, knows that it's part of the body, but it doesn't want to share with the body. It doesn't want to participate with the body. It just wants to be by itself. Now, is that a dumb hand? See, this is the whole truth of the New Testament teaching on koinonia, to be objectively in fellowship with other believers while we experientially deny that very fellowship is to contradict the clear teaching of the Bible and it is to live in disobedience to the revealed will of God. How many want to live in disobedience to the real will of God? No, none of us want to. But we don't often think about this. God means for us to be actively involved with each other. And if we're not, we're living in disobedience. That's sin, isn't it? Because we do belong to one another, we are to express this belonging in acts of mutual concern and caring for one another. Just read all of the one another's in the New Testament. It it just takes your breath away. Just in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 3, verse 13, the writer to the Hebrews says something very, very profound. He says, encourage one another once a month. Encourage each other once a week. How often should we be encouraging each other? Daily. I don't know about you, but I need encouragement daily. Now, I get it from my wife. My wife encourages me every day. Encourages me to get up, you bum, get out to work. (laughs) No, she's a great encourager. Encourage one another daily. I need it daily. Do you need it daily? Now, you may not be aware of it. You may say, oh, I don't need anybody to encourage me daily. The very fact you would say that is an indication you need it. As long as it is called today. In other words, while we still have an opportunity. If we're going to do anything in in one another's life, let's encourage one another. It's easy to be critical, isn't it? And most of the time we are. It's easy to be judgmental. We don't often take a moment and, and, and encourage one another. So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. There's, there's, there's something there. Sin deceives us. Paul says in Romans chapter 7. And we need to be in each other's lives. Not to beat one another up, but just to encourage. Come on. Let's go. In chapter uh, 10 of the book of Hebrews, he says the same thing, takes it a little, little further. He says, let us consider how we may what? Spur. 
a better word, I think, would have been incite. Spur is kind of a rounded word. Incite has a little sharper edge to it, doesn't it? Let's consider how we may incite one another on to what? Love and good deeds. Let us not, what? Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Now, how am I going to, how are we going to incite one another on to love and good deeds if we're not meeting together? How, if, if we're just, how are you doing? How are you doing? Come on, let's keep coming. Let's keep going. But he says, let us, again, here it comes again, encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This idea of encouragement, this idea of involvement in one another's life, it's simply the uh, same idea of community. It's that idea of uh, being involved, caring for one another, um, sharing with one another. It's family, it's community. And this is God's will for us. I think it's a fair statement, and I, I think you'd agree with me, that we're made for this. We're designed for this. We're, we are called to share our lives with others. And some people say, well, I don't have much to share. Well, yeah, it's because you're not sharing, so you don't know what you have to share. Just put yourself in that environment. Just start sharing, even the most minimal thing. If we're faithful with the little things, we can be what? Trusted with greater things. Everybody has something to share. Everybody has, has words of encouragement if we would just do it. There are a lot of people who can't share or won't share simply because they don't really know. They don't know who they are. They don't know what they are. They don't know where they fit. There's an old ancient proverb that says, know thyself. But in the midst of the pressures of today, people don't know who they are. They're lost and confused about who they are. I think that's partially because in our, in our world, in our culture, we emphasize more the doing than the being. Does that make sense? We're so busy doing everything. We're so busy accomplishing things. Um, it, it, it seems to matter more what we do, how much we achieve, what we accomplish, than simply um, who we really are. There, there's some simple questions that that address man and and these questions have been addressed for millennia and every philosophy every religion every thinker if you will has at some point tried to address these questions and and somehow answer them and and one of the great questions is who am i why am i here what's this all about they're simple but they're profound questions and sometimes you know we look at our mirror we say who are you Anybody ever been at odds with themselves? They say, I don't like myself today. I'm not happy with myself. Who am I? 
Where do I fit? And those, those, those issues are real, real issues to us. But we're so busy doing that we never take the time to get to know ourselves, if you will, and get to know who we are. And until we have some insight, I think, and some assurance about our own identity, our own purpose, our own makeup, we can't share ourselves with others. What do I have to share? The fact that you would say that would say you don't know who you are. You don't know what God has given you. You don't know where you fit. There's another reason, I think, for this lack of personal identity. That's because, for many people, they live in a fantasy world, a world of illusion, a world of make-believe, a dream world that's encouraged by movies and television and media and advertising. The whole advertising uh, uh, environment tells us what makes us significant appealing, you know, buy this deodorant and you'll be appealing. Well, I want to wear deodorant, but... I mean, look at the, look at the impact in our culture just on our little girls, uh, Britney Spears. They look up to her. She's a role model. And not just for little girls in the world, little girls in the church. If they get that exposure or they go to school and they hear about this and, and all little girls in school and the peer group pressure and all that stuff happens. This is what we should be like. These are our role models. And on and on it goes. The movies, TV. And this is further emphasized by contrast with the hopelessness of the world in which we live. In other words, we look around and and that dream world on the screen seems so much more exciting and and real and and hopeful. How many many Christians spend more time uh, watching television than they do reading the Bible? I, I mean, that's an indictment to many of us. Because many individuals can't face the complexity and the enormity of the crises that we we face in our culture, in our world, in our own lives, we fall back into a sense of apathy. What can I do? We become apathetic. Maybe we deny that the very problem exists. Oh, it's not as bad as you think. You're you're an alarmist, you know. Or maybe we just retreat into this world of illusion and fantasy because it's safer there. It's more enjoyable there. I don't have to face life. I don't have to face reality. People opt out of life all the time, don't they? They opt out of responsibility all the time. Parents opt out of responsibility with their kids all the time. They're too hard to deal with. They're just These kids are unrelenting. They're unrelenting. They never give up. They just beat on me and beat on me and beat on me and finally I just throw my hands up in frustration. And that's just one arena where we give in and we give up. It's important 
certainly for us to remember that there is no Christian immune from personal trials, conflicts, difficulties. They can befall us any time, can't they? Dale Abrahams just was on his way. Was he going to work? On his way to catch a bus, go to work. Run over by a truck. Last thing he expected. Thankfully, God protected him, and uh, he wasn't hurt uh, severely. Some torn ligaments in his ankle, his leg and such, where the thing ran over him. How many people get hit by a truck? How many, how many of you expect to leave today and go hit, get hit by a truck? You just don't know what's going to happen. Being a disciple of Jesus means not an escape from reality, but rather an entrance into reality. We are optimistic realists. We're not pessimistic about the world. We're not pessimistic about life. We're realists, but we're optimistic realists because why? We live hopefully. We have a hope. Our prayers make a difference. Our interaction makes a difference. Our lives make a difference. We are salt and light, and we have to act like it. We have to be it. I want to suggest to you that Jesus was a total realist. Jesus was not pie in the sky. He was an absolute realist. He promised us problems, didn't he? <laughs> he said, if you're my disciple, you're going to have problems. The world's going to hate you. But don't shrink back. Jesus himself was born into a, the real world of sin and pain and grief and sorrow. But he came to make a difference, didn't he? He shared our struggles. He shared our temptations. He shared our joys. He shared our problems. He defeated the very last enemy, death. You and I don't really have to fear death anymore. We can address it head on because now we see it as a portal into a glorious, glorious eternity. He beat death. Jesus, unlike the prophets of old, did not come saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. He was a realist. He looked around. He understood the real fallenness of this world, and he engaged it. Didn't shrink back from it. He warned the people of his own day of the coming judgment of God on Jerusalem. He forth, straightforwardly told us to expect wars, to expect famines, to expect earthquakes, to expect much tribulation before his coming again. He says these things are going to happen. They must happen. He was honest. He was direct with people. If you read through the Gospels, you, you, you see this phrase over and over and over and over and over. I tell you the... Jesus, sometimes gently, sometimes ruthlessly, he went straight to the people's greatest needs, whether those people concerned themselves, knew it or not. He didn't candy coat things. He said, this is the truth. This is the truth. He calls us today to uh, a life of realism. He calls us today to 
a life of openness. He calls us today to a life of truth. What's the truth? And only, beloved, when we take off our masks, we quit our pretenses, when we become real with one another, when we're willing to walk in the light as he is in the light, can we have true fellowship with him and with each other? How many want to have true fellowship with Jesus? True fellowship. It, it can only happen when we're willing to be, be open, be real. We can't have real fellowship with each other unless we're willing to be real. It's a challenge to our lives. We want everything to be sweetness and light, easy. It ain't that way. But he lives in me. I share in his life. And just as he addressed this life, so can you and I. Not individually, but together. If that light of Christ exposes sin, I have the confidence to know that his blood continues to cleanse me. If I confess my sin, I know that I can do so. He's not going to condemn me, but he's just and righteous and good and holy. He'll forgive me and cleanse me from all my unrighteousness. That's all the more reason to walk in the light, to be willing to walk in the light. There is probably nothing which so shatters our fantasy dream world, nothing which helps us to become to come to terms with our true identity and enables us to be real with one another as genuine Christian community. When you commit yourself to community, when you commit yourself to koinonia, when you say, okay, this is the life, all these other things must of necessity begin to come crashing down and crumbling and giving way to this one overarching principle and truth of koinonia. You have to. We can't continue to be fakes and phonies, hypocrites, if we're committed to koinonia. The truth be known, most people don't want to be involved because it requires, they, they just know it, they just requires that at some point I have to be real. I can't keep up the pretense. Some people, however, join a fellowship. They want to be part of the, the fellowship, and they, they have this dream, if you will, this illusion about Christian community, uh, expecting to find heaven on earth, marked by perfect love, perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect relationship, perfect people. I'm always, always amused when people say, it must be wonderful to work in the church around all those holy people. I want to go, ah. I said, if you only knew. I don't want to burst your bubble, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to. It ain't like that. You work in close quarters with people who are struggling, struggling to be holy and who battle the same things that all of us battle in terms of our own pride and ego, cover-up, pretense, image, all that stuff. You work in that environment and you're constantly having to deal with these things. 
you realize it's not a perfect environment. We read a book last year called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And it's a book on fellowship, koinonia. He said, God's grace, I love this, God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. <laughs> it's by his grace that he shatters these things. He shows us the truth. We're all alike. We all have the same issues. We're no different from one another, only maybe in degree. But the issues are all the same. He goes on, he says, just as surely God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely we must be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we're fortunate, with ourselves. Now, if, his, if what he's saying is true, then we're not going to enjoy Christian fellowship and embrace it, really, until we reach a point where we are disillusioned with ourselves and realize how desperately we need one another. How desperate we need the fellowship. We need the mutual encouragement and strengthening. The light has gone on. I'm not what I thought I was. None of us are an island. We cannot afford to isolate, insulate ourselves from each other. You just can't afford to do it. He goes on, he says, God is not a God of the emotions but the God of truth. It's not a matter of emotionalism. It's a matter of what's true. What's true about us, who we are, and what God has called us to, and our obedience or not. He says only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment, faces it, with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it should be in God's sight. Whoa. Would you like to be in that mini church? In that discipleship group? Man, you go there, you, you know stuff's going to happen that night. And you go there with fear and trembling. You go, oh man, what's going to be said? Who's going to, what, what thing's going to happen? The natural human tendency is to avoid it rather we need to embrace it. He says when the morning mists of dreams vanish then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. If there's one thing one thing that the church must embrace that thing is being real. Being real. In open and frequent fellowship with other believers, can we be sure that we are being real and following Jesus? It's, it's only in our fellowship can we be sure that we're following Jesus. Or that we're not just playing religious games however correct our theology may be. And theology is very, very important. But sometimes we, 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 we sacrifice everything at the altar of theology. I just have to be right. 
not real. When both are critical. Here's a startling statement. You might want to write this down. Christianity is all about relationships. That's what it's all about. Relationships with God and relationships with one another. It's relationship. We're, we're created for this. We're designed for this. And especially as fallen beings, we need this. We have kind of, love, of a love-hate relationship with relationships, don't we? <laughs> I know I need them, but I hate them. There's so much work. Such is the nature of sin. Think about this. Such is the nature of sin, and so powerful are the forces of darkness that we can easily be both deceived and deceitful in our relationships. Isn't that true? How many have been faked out in a relationship? How many have faked out others in the relationship? Yeah, all of us. Every hand ought to go up. None of us are immune. Why? If it's a function of our sinful nature and it's a function of the forces of darkness that gain footholds into our life so that we don't always tell the truth. We're not always truthful. We hedge. We're afraid. Remember that Jesus reserved his sternest judgments for the religious phonies of his day. Many of them were no doubt shocked and offended by his charge of hypocrisy. In fact, part of the reason they wanted to kill him. Sometimes, you know, people kind of get in your face, tell you the truth. <clears throat> you may not want to kill him, but you just, you know, don't necessarily want to be around him anymore. The religious, guy, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, outwardly devout, outwardly moral, apparently highly respected members of their culture, yet they did not see that their relationship with God was mere play acting. You ever wonder about that? You ever wonder, am I really a believer? Am I just pretending? Am I just settling for the lowest common denominator? Do I look around and see, well, everybody else is about that level, so if I'm at that level, then I'm, I, I'm, I'm fine, I'm in. Because they're, certainly they're all in. We're tempted to think that way. Rather than holding the bar high, holding the standard high for ourselves and for one another. Jesus said of those people and similar people today, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They honor me with their lips. We, we sing songs all the time. And, and I wonder sometimes, do we really think through the, the words and the, and the, and the sentiments of those, of those songs and hymns? Jesus, you're, you're my only hope. Is he really? Or do we, are we looking for hope elsewhere? You're my all. Is he really? 
You ever find yourself singing these songs and, and kind of mindlessly mouthing these words, especially songs we've sung for a long time that you just kind of know and you just sing because everybody else is singing it? Alan makes us sing these songs. <laughs> I get so mad at him sometimes we sing these songs. Do you know that in the early church, the sense of Christian community was so strong, it was so fundamental, that salvation apart from the church was considered impossible. Unless you gave evidence by your participation in the church, you were not looked on as really being saved. There's lots of people today who, quote-unquote, get saved and then remain either on the periphery of the church or not at all. They're kind of out there doing their own thing. Oh, yeah, I'm a believer. I believe. I believe Jesus is my Savior and so forth. Well, where are you? See, when individuals were added to the Lord, they were added to the church. The the two went together. You couldn't separate them in the minds of, of the first century Christians. When they belong to Christ, they belong equally to his body. They belong to one another. They're inseparable. The severest punishment for unrepentant sin that we read about in the New Testament was to be excluded from the church fellowship. It's called church discipline. This was tantamount to delivering the fender over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, for the salvation of his soul. Grace was to be experienced where? In the church. And to be excluded from that environment of grace was, was severe punishment. Now, we, we don't think anything of it today. Put somebody under church discipline, they just leave and go to another church. It has no effect. That wasn't so in the first century. I had cause last year to after much prayer, much consultation to put a family under church discipline and exclude them from our fellowship. And true to form, all they did was go to this church and that church and they started visiting other churches. Well, they don't like me at Hope Chapel. They're nasty over there. And so they started visiting other churches. I called them and I said, have you repented yet? And they slammed the phone in my ear. Last month, I got a call from them and a letter. Could we please come back? I called them up and said, have you repented yet? Yes. I had a meeting with them last week. And there was definite, definite fruit of repentance being evidenced. And so it's going to be my pleasure this week to restore them to fellowship. But you see, the discipline did its work. I said, have you been visiting? Oh, yeah, we we went to this church and that church. I said, what conclusions have you come to? We miss Hope Chapel. We miss our family. That's our family. And, And the other churches were fine. They were good. 
but they weren't our family. We want to come home, and we knew we couldn't come home unless we made some serious changes in our life. Fellowship. Fellowship. Now, again, there are people who don't value fellowship. It's no big deal. Let's go to another church. Tragic. And they just go on living in their same illusory world, wearing their masks, being phonies, pretending like they're okay, everybody else is wrong, unwilling to submit to church discipline and let that discipline have its work. See, the New Testament concept of the church isn't necessarily a building. I mean, we, we need a building. We need some place to meet. We need parking places. It's just a function of our culture we live in. Even if you have a house church, you still need a place to meet. You still need parking available. But the New Testament concept of the church isn't limited to a building. It's not, we're not just an organization. We're not just an institution. Those things can be applied to us. But really, the, the New Testament concept of the church is the people. The people are the church. We are organized. We are kind of institutional in a sense. But it's the people. The disciples of Jesus And we're meant to gain strength from belonging to one another. If your life is weak, it's because you're not really involved in in Christian fellowship, in koinonia. Every Christian is growing. Every Christian is maturing. And it doesn't matter where they came from in terms of their life experience. It doesn't matter how, quote-unquote, defective they've been or abused they've been. Every single Christian who embraces this truth, this principle of koinonia and participates in the life of Christ will grow, will grow, will mature. Healing happens in the context of community. Say that with me. Healing happens in the context of community, whether it be personal healing, physical healing, spiritual healing, only in the context of community. Bonhoeffer said this. He said, He who looks upon his brother should know that he will be eternally united with him in Jesus Christ. As we look on each other, this realization has to talk. We're going to be all together for eternity. Isn't that glorious? And I would hope that we wouldn't want to miss anybody. Hey, where's so-and-so? How come they're not here? And, and, and the only assurance that we're going to have is because we're in community, and that community forces us to grow. Community and commitment to that forces us to be real people, people of the truth. Am I making sense? Now, what's the true basis for all fellowship, do you think? What is the true basis for all fellowship? What's the true basis for all fellowship? What's that? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. When two or more people come and kneel together at the cross, what happens there?
You see, at that point of reality, we come to see how our sins, our sins, crucified him. How our sins affect his body today, the church. How our sins divide us one from another. Once we really face that, nothing that we can say or do should surprise us concerning the image that we have about ourselves. Once you kneel at the cross, once you come and confess your sins, once you acknowledge who you really are with your brother or sister or husband or wife or whatever, no more illusions. You can't kneel there and lie. You look at that cross and you know that your sins put him up there and that your sins continue to tear apart the body of Christ. As you're kneeling at the cross and you turn to your brother or your sister, nothing you or he may say should surprise each one of you, either one of you. Why? Because you both know you're sinners. You both know. We can no longer be critical or judgmental of one another because at the cross right there, we discover the state of our own spiritual heart. Just try it. Just try it. The cross is the heart of all fellowship. If there was no cross, there's no real fellowship. If there's no cross, keep coming back to and revisiting. John says, confess your sins, confess your sins. James says, confess your sins one to another. And healing happens, restoration happens. It's only through the cross that fellowship is deepened and fellowship is matured. And how does that happen? How does fellowship get deepened and matured at the cross? Because at the cross, that requires what? It requires of us frequent and painful crucifixion of self in all of its forms. If there's one thing that you and I work hard to do is to preserve ourselves. Isn't that true? We have a hunger to live. We have a hunger to exist. We extend that to ourself. Protect myself at all costs. But when you go to the cross, you have to crucify self. And it is a painful process. Self-seeking, self-centeredness, self-esteem, self-righteousness, and the willingness to remain in open fellowship with other Christians. I have to be willing to do that. It is so hard. I don't want to give of myself. I want to be comfortable. I'm too tired. I don't want to... Anybody know what I'm talking about? Truth be known, most of us try to encounter each other from positions of strength, don't we? It's kind of like one-upsmanship. You ever do that? Someone tells a story or a testimony, and then you've got a better one to tell. Oh, well, I can top that one. Listen to this. What do we do? We talk about we talk about our strengths. We talk about our gifts. We talk about our talents. We talk about our abilities. We talk about our accomplishments, achievements, and blessings. 
Now, certainly mutual encouragement along these lines is necessary. It's helpful. We don't want to totally throw the baby out with the bathwater, but it must be balanced with true fellowship, which begins when we meet at the point of weakness and which binds our hearts together in love. Paul says, I I would rather boast about my weaknesses. Boast about my weaknesses. Because I know that in my weakness, his strength is perfected. See, when when I'm willing to be open, when we're willing to be open with each other about our personal needs, our issues, when we're willing to risk shock and rejection, and when we're willing for you to be equally open with us. Oh, something happens. We find ourselves on level ground, don't we? We find ourselves simply at the foot of the cross, the place of God's healing and grace. And I know all of us have experienced this. There's there's times when we we just come clean. It's I I just got I just gotta I gotta unburden myself. And what a relief. It's just like now all of a sudden we're in the light, isn't it true? But we're all afraid. We're all afraid of being open with one another. It's, you know, I'm afraid, I'm afraid to tell you who I really am. Because if you discover who I really am, you may not like who I am, but that's all I got. I got nothing in reserve. I got no fallback position. It's just who I am. If you don't like me, ah! I just knew it. I get out there. I open up. I hang it all out there. And you reject me and don't like me. Oh, no. Where am I going to go? Is anybody just me? Anybody else? Cecil's with me. He, he understands. So we find it safer to maintain an image, don't we? We find it safer to maintain an image to put on a mask to hide our real selves. We continue in that paradigm out of self-preservation. Jesus said to us, he says, if if you're willing to lose your life, then you find it. But if you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. I think this dynamic is why there are so many churches that really never, ever demonstrate the quality of community life that Jesus wants us to experience. I think that's why there are so few genuine disciples of Jesus. There's a whole bunch of actors. A whole bunch of actors. I remember when I was a a young man, my my dad told me I'd done some foolish stuff, and he was real frustrated with me. He says, why don't you act like a man? Well, it didn't dawn on me that I didn't know what men act like. So I started looking around at other men to see what men act like. And I, too, continued to be one of the actors. (laughs) It wasn't until I became a Christian, began to look at Jesus, and then I began to understand what it means to be a man. I'm still not a man. I'm still an actor, but I'm beginning to understand, even at this late stage. Better late than never, right? Our churches are filled with people today. They're filled with people who outwardly look contented, outwardly look at peace, outwardly look holy, but inwardly, they're a mess. Inwardly, they're afraid, they're angry, 
They're embittered. They're full of unforgiveness. They're frustrated. They're frightened. They're guilty. And often simply unable to communicate even with their own families. Isolated, isolated, isolated. Marriages today are like that. Even marriages in the church. No one really sharing. No one really talking. No one really risking with each other. When in fact, that's what a family ought to be, huh? We look at the other people in the church and they seem to have it all together. They look so good, so happy, so contented that we seldom have the courage to admit our own deep needs to them because, after all, they couldn't possibly understand where we're at. Genuine fellowship comes. Comes when Christians stop relating to one another only as righteous saints and accept one another as unrighteous sinners. Now, I know theologically there may be a little conundrum there, but there's something of that, I think, that's the truth. Let's take off our masks. Let's, let's take a step of faith and, and risk and, and be open. If the true facts about us were to be exposed, let's risk and see if the shock to the system would destroy the system or not. It'll all come crashing down. But because we don't do that, sin remains concealed beneath our hypocrisy. It's just there. It's there. It's only when we are encouraged to say truthfully who and what we are that we discover the reality of freedom as God's children. How many want to be free? I want to know the freedom of being in Christ. Yeah. That's only going to happen, beloved, when we, are, we begin to be open with each other. And that only happens in the context of community. Koinonia. See, in God's presence, I think all of us are confident that we are free to admit our sin. Isn't that true? I mean, we know from his word that he loves us. We know that he accepts us, even though he knows the worst about us. Until we come to that same point of truthfulness with each other, we'll never experience. This is the the importance of our community. We'll never experience how deep is God's love? Never know the reality of that accepting and forgiving and caring love as it can be expressed through the body. We have this divided view. God is there, and well, here's the church. And we diminish the church, not realizing that God is present in the church. He's chosen to live in the life of the church and through the life of the church. So we pray to God and we ask God to forgive us, but we don't, we don't embrace his forgiveness here. We want to experience it. Why doesn't God come down and talk to me? He does. It's in the church. It's in community. It's in fellowship. It's in koinonia. When we close our hearts to one another, we close our hearts to God. You can't have this divided understanding and view of things. We need to learn to recognize the spirit of Christ in our brothers and sisters. 
And as we love and serve each other, we are loving and serving Him. Paul said, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So we should try to see one another, not as we naturally are, but as what we are and can become in Christ. I'm not perfect. I'm in the process of perfection in my day-to-day experience. I'm perfect in God's sight, non-condemnable. But the reality is I live out my day-to-day life. I'm living hopefully. I'm hopefully for myself, hopefully for you. We live today in a church, a sick church, that desperately need God's healing. We've relegated all that to the professionals rather than the body of Christ, rather than to the Holy Spirit working through his body in the context of community. James tells us, here's the remedy he gives to us. He says, confess your sins to each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. Depends upon how motivated I am to get healed, doesn't it? Unconfessed sin holds us in the darkness. Unconfessed sin breaks our fellowship both with God and with each other. It tears apart the body of Christ. It hampers these relationships. It robs both the believer and the community of God's peace, God's shalom. Listen to David's words in Psalm 32. When I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Unconfessed sin. And Christian fellowship... Christian fellowship is infected through the sin of any one of our members. Remember Achan in the book of Joshua. One man, the whole nation honored God's command. One man steals from God, hides it, and the whole nation was affected. Fellowship is restored, the body healed, only when that sin is openly confessed and brought into the light and forgiven. And this acknowledgement of sin in the presence of another brother and or sister is a safeguard against self-deception. It is so easy for us to deceive ourselves, to live in self-deception. This is why it's imperative that we be in community. Because in community, and all of us know this, you get, you get the person over there who's quiet, not saying anything, well, I'm just shy. No, it's more than you're just being shy. I don't want to risk. I don't want to speak up. That's sin. Curiously, I think it's easier to confess our sins privately to a holy and sinless God than openly to one another. Openly to an unholy, sinful another person, right? Think of the logic of that one. Now, if that's true... We must ask ourselves whether we have not often been deceiving ourselves 
with our confession of sin to God, whether we have not rather been confessing our sins simply to ourselves and granting ourselves self-absolution. Well, how do I know I've been doing that? I thought I've been confessing to God. Well, the real test is very simply this. Do you continue to relapse into that sin? Is there a feebleness, if you will, to your Christian obedience? If those things are characteristic of your Christian life and walk, then I think you have to say, you know what? Maybe I've just been confessing to myself. Maybe I've been just granting myself absolution. James says what? Confess your sins to one another, that you may be healed. The principle is not just physical healing. The the principle, I think, is breaking the power of sin, being delivered, being honest. We all know what it's like to hide, don't we? And when you hide, even if you say, well, I, I, I confess, God I, God, I sinned again. I did it again. I did it again. Anybody miserable about that? Yeah. See, a few heads not even. No one's going to raise their hand on that one because, right, you indict yourself, huh? <laughs> Heavens that I should confess. Yeah, I'm one of those people, yeah. There's a feebleness to, feebleness to, my, to my walk. See, sin's power has to be broken has to be broken. It, it, it can no longer hold the believer in bondage, nor can it then tear apart the body when it's confessed openly. You see, uh, that's when you and I as sinners can honestly be sinners, if that makes sense, and still experience the grace of God and the love of the family of God. And then fellowship in Christ becomes a profound reality. You begin to love the body. You begin to love the body. I love Jesus, but I hate his people. That's what we say by our actions. And then when you experience this dynamic, you begin to love the body. You love being part of the body. You see the dynamic. You see the breaking of the grip and the power of sin. You see healing begin to happen in people's lives. Restoration, miracles happen. Bonhoeffer says this. I love this. In confession, the Christian gives up all and follows. It's kind of like denying yourself. Confession, he says, is discipleship. Life in Christ and his community has begun. All starts where? It starts right there at the foot of the cross. It starts in open confession. Now, certainly when they're talking about this, wisdom is needed in knowing how much to confess in any particular given group, right? And to whom you confess. I mean, explicit confession may not always be expedient or healthy for some, you know, tender ears. But each one of us should have a peer group. Each one of us should have a discipler, someone in our life in whose presence you and I can say anything. We can say anything. A common feature in the great revivals, Christian revivals in the church, has been 
this very dynamic of open confession. Open confession of sin to one another. When people were moved and they saw there was no power of God, they saw there was no change, they saw the church was no different from the world, people began to say, you know what, we're the problem. And one by one, they began to open up. One by one, they began to enter into genuine Christian fellowship. One by one, they began to confess their sin openly to one another. And as bondages were broken, as, as strongholds were being torn down, the power of God began to move. And the church had a testimony. People got saved. Revivals broke out. It all starts, beloved, with genuine community and a willingness to risk, a willingness to get involved. You say, I don't know anybody. Meet somebody. (laughs) Invite them into fellowship. Say, let's do that. Let's do that stuff that the pastor was talking about. Let's let's just practice. Let's just start. Let's just experiment. Let's, let's, Let's be real, maybe for the first time in our life. Let's see if fellowship and unity are restored. Let's see if the Holy Spirit will move in power in our lives and in our midst. Let's just see. I want to pose five questions to you and just answer simply yes or no. Write your answer down in your notes. Number one, are you devoted to the fellowship? Yes or no? Number two, are you realizing God's purpose in your life? Yes or no? Number three, are you committed to the building up of the body of Christ? Yes or no? Number four, are you sharing your life with others? Yes or no? And number five, are you experiencing koinonia? Amen. Father, we just do come before you again this morning. and Lord, you know the very thoughts of our hearts. And Lord, as we ponder these things and take in what we can take in and make whatever commitments we make this morning. I pray, God, that your spirit would speak into our lives, our minds, our very hearts, convict us, challenge us, and Lord, convince us again that you will strengthen us if we would but just take a step of faith. Father, we say we love you today. And we want to mean that with all of our hearts. We thank you that you love us. We confess to you that we have fallen short. That community has not been a priority in the lives of many of us. Lord, we repent of that. Recommit ourselves to your purpose, to your plan, your design. Lord, I pray this is a new day for many of us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Turn to your neighbor. Tell your neighbor one thing that you learned this morning. One thing. Then let's stand together and praise God before we dismiss.